Hello and welcome to the first episode of People of the Past. Our series will begin with the King of Macedon and the Lord of the Persians, Alexander the Great. Dive into his life from the early life into his death at the age of 32 years old. Greek, right before Alexander's time, had withered into a shell of its former self. The Athenian maritime empire had fallen apart, Sparta was in decline, and the new polis leading Greece, Thebes, had barely half a century of military dominance to its name. Alexander's father, Philip, was raised in the foremost Greek state, Thebes, where he learned military tactics and diplomacy. After his ascension to the throne of Macedon, Philip quickly began expansion into the Greek territories. Philip had an approach to combat that the Greek world had never fought against before, such as promoting specific units of elite troops that had served with distinction, uh, focus on weakest points in an enemy's formation to break their line, and keep many of your men unengaged in combat so that they could rapidly respond to unexpected threats, and added many cavalry divisions to his armies, Philip being the Greek word for lover of horses. For context, most of the time in Greek warfare, the form of combat was hoplite warfare. Hoplites were heavily armored and shielded units that used spears and were nigh impenetrable. Philip's revolutions to combat that the Greeks had never seen before, as well as the additions of his melee units being equipped with a sarissa, an almost 20 foot long on average pike, made the Greek polis he fought against completely unprepared to face him. His conquest was rather uneventful, as Philip had little difficulty with it. The last battle was in Caronia in which Philip fought against both Athens and Thebes. Using the knowledge that Thebes was better in combat than Athens, he met them head-on with his best soldiers, whom were under the command of his son, Alexander the Great, who at the time had just turned 18, and graduated from schooling under Aristotle. As Philip predicted, the Athenians had crumbled in combat, leaving only the skilled Thebans to battle. Alexander quickly used the cavalry under his command to surround and kill the remaining Thebes, uh, this included the Theban Sacred Band, a group of 150 pairs of male lovers who had been known as Thebes' greatest warriors and had been seemingly invincible up into this battle. After this crushing defeat, Athens and Thebes surrendered, and Philip had claimed all of Greece, with the exception of Sparta, whom they never escalated to war with. Both Philip and Alexander saw this as too much trouble to spend their time conquering with how little they would receive in return. After Philip's death by assassins in 336 BC, Alexander rose to the throne. At the young age of 20, Alexander was now leading the largest empire the Greek world had ever seen. The first order of business would be taking down threats to his claim and suppressing Greek states that saw the new, inexperienced king as a chance to revolt and separate from the ever-growing Macedonian kingdom. After disposing of a few Macedonian princes that had threatened him, he set his sights on Thebes, Athens, Thessaly, and Thracian tribes, all of whom were now in open revolt. Many of them would surrender quickly, such as Thessaly, which had found their revolt surrounded by Alexander's men overnight, and Athens, who would sue for peace with him. Thebes, however, was a different story. Many of the revol revolts hesitated to fight and submitted. Thebes, however, decided to keep going until the end. The revolt was ineffective in everything but making Alexander furious. Thebes itself was completely razed with all men executed and the women and children captured. This marks one of the few moments Alexander would truly lose his cool. For many of his conquests and captures of cities, Alexander's would do his best to govern fairly and respect the local culture. However, when a city would make him furious, the outcome was terrible. Thebes would suffer a fate that completely wiped them off the map, and this fate would be shared with only one other notable battle, which we will get to soon. 
After Thebes fell, all remaining Greek states that had not yet submitted were cowed into loyalty. So, Alexander began to set his eyes upon expanding rather than consolidation. Citing revenge for the wars 150 years ago, Alexander would declare war on Persia and cross the Hellespont and begin his conquest. Alexander had made several new changes to his father's already innovative army structure, basing the composition on how quickly each specific unit in his army could move, with the slower infantry units forming the middle core of his army with lighter and faster support units next to them, and this would go on until he reached his lightest and fastest cavalry on the outer edges. This change would make it so that Alexander could arrange his army as he saw fit to engage where he wanted, allowing the army to pivot and change the battle lines swiftly. This goes well with the fact that Alexander wasn't relying solely on hoplite warfare, he had slinger units, light and heavy infantry, and light and heavy cavalry, an amalgamation of units that was completely alien to Greek warfare. Speaking of, this number of different units in complex maneuvering would be extremely difficult to keep in order, so Alexander opted to be a frontline commander leading his troops in the front view of all. This would prove an effective way to command his army and raise morale, but it was extremely risky. A single failed battle or even a simple mistake in combat could kill him and put an end to his conquest right then and there. This was shown outright in his first ever battle against Persia at Granicus. Alexander was wounded and nearly killed in the battle, but rallied his forces and still pulled off a resounding victory. As Alexander moved further and further into Persian territory, his main goal was to grab as much land as possible. Specifically, he wanted the Persian ports in the Mediterranean, both to cut off landing areas from Persian forces that might sneak up on him, and to secure the Mediterranean itself, which would grant him good methods of supplies, trades, and mobility, until he would further travel into Persia and get away from the sea. Unfortunately for Alexander, Persia would still be able to take him by surprise in the Battle of Issus. As Alexander's army was marching south, King Darius's army approached him from the north, just above the Levant River. This meant that Alexander's formation would be a direct mirror of how he usually had it and would make commanding his army significantly harder. Luckily, Alexander's cavalry would prove to be his greatest asset in the battle, rooting not only King Darius himself, but after flanking his army, they inflicted heavy losses on their infantry units. Darius would get away, but Darius's family, whom he had brought along to watch the victory over Alexander, did not. After the battle, he now had Darius's wife and children hostages. Darius, now realizing the situation he was in, sent a message of negotiation to Alexander. He proposed for the exchange of his family and an agreement for peace, he would allow Alexander a sum of 10,000 Greek talents, which in today's money is a sum of 3.4 billion US dollars, and all of the territories that Alexander had already claimed would be rightfully his. Alexander's response was to return Darius's family for the money, but denied the request for peace, citing that he alone was the king of Asia and he would be the one to decide who kept what territories, not Darius. In the short term after this, Alexander would go on to conquest all of Syria. The next notable battle in Alexander's career would be the invasion of the island state of Tyre. Tyre was not a part of the Persian kingdom and therefore stated that they had the right to claim neutrality in this war. Alexander was not willing to accept this and demanded that they either submitted to him or he would force them to. Tyre would not allow this and prepared for war against Alexander. The Battle of Tyre is perhaps the most complex and impressive battle of this age. 
Alexander, who could not besiege an island city in the traditional way, instead opted to build a kilometer-long, 200-foot-wide causeway that would form a natural bridge to the island, which would allow his siege towers to attack the city. Tyr, in response, would attack the causeway and make the construction as slow as possible. In response to this, Alexander would build large towers for his siege engines to attack from. Tyr would then make a combustible boat and send it headfirst into the towers, burning them down and destroying much of the causeway. After this back and forth, Alexander declared that he could not take the city without a navy, and used the cities he had previously conquered to form a fleet, placing rams and siege towers upon the largest of his galleys and slowly but surely destroying the Tyr fleet and armies. After an eight-long-month battle, Alexander had finally breached the walls. Alexander was absolutely livid. As I stated before, Alexander would do his best to treat his conquered people fairly and would make a point not to rape and pillage those he would best. In Greek, the exception to this was Thebes, and in Persia, the exception was Tyr. Alexander ex executed all of the able-bodied men and sold over 30,000 people into slavery. After the siege of Tyr, he set his sights on Egypt. Many of the cities and towns he crossed would surrender without a fight and would accept him as a new ruler without question. As Alexander liberated Egypt from Persian rule, they accepted him easily. They had despised Persian rule for some time now, after the ki a previous king, Cambyses, had mocked Egyptian religious monuments and destroyed others. Alexander was very swiftly and easily declared pharaoh of Egypt for freeing them of Persia. After Egypt, Alexander would return to Persia and take down Darius for good, chasing him across the Persian territories. The two would finally meet in the Battle of Guagamela, in which Darius was bested once again and would flee in battle. Alexander would once again chase Darius through Media and then Parthia, and in the end, it was not Alexander who would kill Darius, but one of his own governors, Bessus, who had captured and then killed Darius in front of Alexander, who was now furious for having his rightful kill stolen from him. Alexander would begin to hunt Bessius all around Persia to defeat what he saw as a usurper. As Alexander chased Bessius, he founded many cities throughout Central Asia, Alexandria, Kahandir, and Alexandria Ashat, as Alexander really liked to name cities after himself. As Alexander spent more and more time away from Greece, the more his soldiers and his people were beginning to have doubts about him. Greece had traditionally hated kings, and yet Alexander was acting like one. Adopting more Persian culture over Greek and forcing his soldiers to take Persian wives after divorcing his, their Greek ones. Greece itself, while enjoying a peaceful prosperity and not willing to raise arms against Alexander or his generals, was feeling more and more uncertain about him. Alexander himself, however, was too far away to concern himself with how Greeks saw him and began his continually expansion into India. This would not last long, however, as Alexander's army would revolt as they reached the Ganges River. Fearing the Indian armies with which they had just had a terrible battle with and exhausted from years of warfare that they had endured, Alexander relented and began his return to Greece. Alexander's plan of expansion had still not seen their end, however, and he planned to expand his empire into the coastal cities of Africa. These plans, however, would never come to fruition, as Alexander would die at the age of 32 and 323 BC after suffering from a terrible fever. Many speculate that he had been poisoned during his great feasts once that he had returned to Babylon. After his death, Alexander's empire would be split into four distinct nations, the Ptolemy Kingdom of Egypt, the Seculid Empire, the Kingdom of Pergamon, and Macedon. 
Just years after his death, his once impossibly big empire was split and already infighting between each other, revealing the truth that Alexander had not properly prepared for longevity in his empire and simply desired expansion for expansion's sake. And so ends the tale of Alexander the Great and people of the past. We will continue to look at Hellenistic history makers with our next episode, which will be about someone far before Alexander's time, Herodotus.